Young adults, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. This is one of those mornings where not quite everything came together in time. Uh, we didn't get uh, here early enough for me to get my computer and monitor and all that uh, set up. So I'll give you the next best thing. The I've got one, thanks. Um, we'll just walk down through the, the slides since I, I can never depend on this to work right and I don't want to waste time. Several weeks ago, we embarked upon a study on traits of a healthy church. Such a series can have several, uh, several phased or several aspects to the purpose of it. Uh, some would be that we'd learn and uh, change accordingly and also that we would uh, excel still more. We've been... We had a little bit of an intermission for a few weeks, but as we study God's revealed and clear message about what the church is, by His definition, what His church, church's priorities are to be, our priorities ought to be God's priorities. What should characterize the ministry here? What should characterize when somebody asks you that they're, they live in a different location and they ask you, well, I'm looking for a good church. Well, what do you mean by good church? As Cindy was texting me yesterday, you know, she's interacting with some family who's asking, how can we find a good church in our area? Well, we need to define a good church according to the book. According to Scripture, what's God's definition? What should characterize it? And we've seen that it's to be marked by several features, by expositional preaching, biblical theology, a biblical understanding on the gospel, a biblical understanding on conversion. We'll look at those. We'll, we'll review those in just a second. But uh, just just ramping up and gathering our thoughts together. When we say that these are features that define a, a healthy church, that is to say when churches do not teach the Bible, they do not teach sound doctrine, they become what? If these are marks of a healthy church and you don't pursue those marks, you become unhealthy, right? What does an L... An unhealthy church look like, you might ask. Well, it's, it's a church in which the sermons often veer into cliche and repetition, and worse, they become moralistic and, and man-centered. The gospel is recast in little more than spiritual self-help. Without a biblical understanding of us all being about sound doctrine, expositional preaching, a biblical understanding on conversion. You know, in not understanding conversion, 
you might view salvation as an act of human resolve, and unfortunately the culture of the church becomes indistinguishable from the secular culture surrounding it. Such congregations that are unhealthy do not herald the tremendous news of salvation of Jesus Christ, to say the least. Let me, let me help you understand how practical this is to where we live and interact. Just recently, I was sitting in on a... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just be around town when there's things going on, whether it's a a uh, bunch of political candidates getting together at Edmund Town Hall and uh, being able to dialogue with people out in the foyer there, or this other event. And I went to a youth panel discussion at the library, and uh, a number of local teens were sharing their experience. They went out on what they called a missions trip. And if you are on a mission, what is that mission? Boy, somebody's astute. Share the gospel. That is, what care, that is what qualifies you to be on a mission. And so these teens were sharing that they were on a missions trip. And there was a local church that uh, was, had a big part of this youth panel discussion I heard nothing about the gospel, nor did they ever present the gospel on their, quote, missions trip. So lest you think that what we're looking at in adult Sunday school in this series on traits of a healthy church, this is where we live. This is one of what we want to focus on, what we are to be and what we are to become so that we define church health by how God defines church health in the Scriptures. So, the gospel not even mentioned means that this, is not, this was not a mission. Uh, it's not the saving gospel of sinners in need of reconciliation with the Holy God. Oftentimes, uh, places that would call themselves churches, they do mission trips all the time. But uh, is it about sharing the good news that man has offended a holy God and needs to be reconciled to Him, and here's how to do so, by turning from our sin and embracing Christ alone through faith. So look at the second slide, since we don't have our, our PowerPoint, just by way of review. Where, where have we been so that we'd know where we're going? In our little review, first week of looking at what constitutes, what kind of traits make us a healthy church. The first is sound doctrine. You might call this biblical theology. In Titus chapter 2 and verse number 1, we were looking at the pastoral epistles and in second uh, or in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 1, here's a man, a young man who was on mission that Paul addressed, and he says to Titus, there in Titus 2.1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That was his goal. That was his mission. That's what God had sent him to the island of Crete for. We must, if we claim to be a church and to engage in gospel enterprise, be concerned with what we are taught. 
We must be committed to know the God of the Bible as He's revealed Himself. So that church is not centered around whatever works. But it's all about soundness. Now this word uh, we had mentioned in our, in our study back then, sound, the root, at, at its very root meaning, is a medical term. It's the image from the medical world meaning whole. So when Paul says to Titus, on the island of Crete, you are to concern yourself with sound doctrine, you could translate this healthy doctrine. Doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching or truth. Concern yourself with whole teaching, whole doctrine. Faithful to teach the whole Bible, to flesh out the whole counsel of God. And if we want to be a healthy church, we not only concern ourselves with sound doctrine, but second of all, expositional preaching. There is a dearth of biblical preaching, leaving evangelicals weak and flabby, starving for spiritual truth, who are susceptible to the ravages of the enemy. No church is going to rise higher than its pulpit, its view of the proclamation of God's truth. It is mandated by God. If we were to spend a little more time, which we won't, we would look at some of the models like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 9. When we say that a healthy church comprises of, ex, uh, of expositional preaching, we're saying it is that which exalts and exposes the riches of Christ that stands against the Christ, Christless Christianity of our day. The, we're talking about the proclamation that exposes Jesus and all of His majesty and all of His glory. And uh, that ought to, you ought to tuck away in your mind as, you, as we get ready to get back to the Gospel of Matthew this morning in our morning worship service in Matthew chapter 23. We're talking about a Christianity that is all about Christ, that if Christ did not come, there would be no hope of salvation, no hope of rescue, no hope of being reconciled with God, no hope to getting to heaven. And it's only that expositional preaching which unpacks all the glories of Christ, which is consumed not with pragmatism, not with relevance, but God revealing Himself to mortal man such as us. We're talking about a return to the conviction of the power of the Word to save, the power of the Word to sanctify, and the means to disseminate sound doctrine is expositional preaching. So you notice how each mark or each trait of a healthy church builds upon each other? So we've moved from, from sound doctrine to expositional preaching. Thirdly, if somebody, you know, your family or friend calls you up and says, says I, I, I need a, a healthy church, you'd say, well, a third thing to be looking for is a biblical understanding of the good news. In your, on your review slide, that, that is bullet point three. We're talking about a ministry that is gospel-saturated, gospel-centered. 
We should not have to spend 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes on a church's website to find out what they believe about salvation, what they believe about the gospel. You should not have to look high and low to try to find out if they understand the gospel. It ought to be plastered everywhere. This is what makes us a ministry, as I said in, our, in my introductory comments, namely the gospel. The gospel is the heart of Christianity. It's not that God wants to meet people's felt needs or help them develop a healthier self-image. It is that we have sinfully rebelled against our Creator and judge. That's the bad news. What's the good news? That He graciously sent His Son to die the death that you and I deserved and that we deserved and should have. But for the grace of God, that's why a, a little study in God's electing love that we did last Sunday in Titus 1, 1 through 4 is really what turns our crank, is it not? We want to be a ministry that's gospel-centered. Fourthly, a biblical understanding of conversion. The spiritual change that you and I need is so radical, only God can do it. You can't work it up from within. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know that. We need Him to convert us. So we're not just talking about somebody having an emotional experience or a religious experience. We're saying that if somebody truly had a biblical experience of conversion, it's going to evidence itself. This is what we call staving faith or lordship salvation. Many, many different uh, caveats would, would get to the heart of this issue. We're talking about Jesus saying, I have ordained you that you bear much fruit. A healthy church is made by healthy doctrine, expositional preaching, biblical understanding of the good news, biblical understanding of conversion. And you notice that, uh, that fifth bullet point there, which, well, you could say was our series in 2 Peter 1 uh, several months ago, or our recent study in Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Submission to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. This is where the battle rages today in contemporary evangelicalism, 2014. Why is it that we are trying to help people understand such a, such a focus on discipleship counseling like the class we just started last Tuesday? Because the battle used to be with liberals over inspiration of Scripture. That God is the author and the originator of Scripture. That He breathed out His truth. That's where the battle used to rage. Then it progressed into the battle for inerrancy. Well, we'll accept the Bible, but not those passages that are miraculous. The battle over inerrancy. 
That's not necessarily where the battle rages today. The battle rages over this principle. Do you not only in your doctrinal statement state that we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but do we practice that as a church? Because this is where the battle rages. The submission to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And right before we move into what we, would prob- what we would say is the sixth trait of a healthy church. I know on the PowerPoint I put 0.5, but uh, it's really 0.6. Go over to Second Peter. This is all just review. In Second Peter chapter 1, And though I really want us to look at verses 3 and 4, uh, Peter is unpacking the gospel from, uh, from the very get-go. Notice how he starts off chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, he identifies himself, just a bondservant or slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar to you? A slave, an apostle? Did we spend a little time in Titus 1 last week? This is the way Paul identifies himself. This is the way Peter identifies himself. And he is addressing those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. This is what what, uh, Jude would recount as the faith once for all delivered. So Peter says, I'm writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Here's his prayer, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our... So, uh, this, this ought to sound so familiar to us. This is the same similar vein in which Paul writes that Christianity is a battle for the mind. What we're going to believe. If you don't win the battle in your mind, you don't win it. The knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Learning more of the greatness of Him and the greatness displayed in our lives. Notice the tools He's given us in this knowledge. How do we increase this knowledge of God and Jesus Christ? Verse 3, seeing as His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you have everything in your arsenal that you need to lead a life that brings God glory? Yes, you do. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may partake of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world. So we've got an all-sufficient Christ and an all-sufficient Scripture. We've got His promises of His person. You don't have one without the other. So the submission to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. We, Peter addresses it. How about uh, back in Psalm 19 that we spent three weeks perusing? In Psalm 19, as the psalmist schools us 
in the perfections of the Word. In Psalm 19 and verse number 7, he says that this law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. So he goes through in these few verses using synonymous terms for the Word of God, the truth of God, the law of God, the precepts, His testimonies, His fear, His judgments, and what they'll produce in our lives. And he clinches the chapter by showing not just in our salvation, but in our sanctification, how they'll, they'll warn us, verse 11, in keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless. I'll be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So that's all review. Characteristics or distinguishing traits of how we can be a healthy church. Let's move on. Part six. I would submit to you that in order for us to be healthy, at Newtown Bible Church. We must have an evangelism shaped by the understanding of conversion. We need a biblical view of evangelism. Biblical view of evangelism. And I want you to see the connection of how our biblical view of evangelism comes out. Of, if we said that each of these traits builds upon one another, we had already stated the need for an understanding of conversion, who saves who, who does what. See the connection. How much our view of evangelism is shaped by our understanding of a previous trait on conversion. I think it's rather providential that we would look at this trait of health right after our study last week considering the opening of Paul's letter to Titus about God's gracious electing love. In other words, if our understanding has been shaped by the Bible on God and how He works, as well as its teaching on the Gospel and what human beings ultimately need, then a right understanding of evangelism follows after that. If we have a biblical view of evangelism, we will attempt as a church to spur evangelism on primarily, catch this, through teaching and meditating on the gospel itself and not through our method of understanding or sharing it. So we will concentrate not on our methodologies and our technique in evangelism, Paul last week in Titus 1 was appealing to a 
a biblical knowledge, a growing, expansive knowledge. Second Peter that we just read again this morning, Peter does the same thing. An expanded knowledge. So, to bring that into the realm of practicality in our evangelism, it's not about programming. It's not about methodology. It is through teaching and meditating on the gospel itself, not through our methods for sharing the good news. You understand that? There are questions or queries, disconnects in your mind as we say that before we move on. I want to make sure that we bring everyone along together. So our evangelism is shaped by our understanding of conversion. First bullet point under there, the gracious nature of salvation breeds gratitude. I was sharing with a couple of brothers last week uh, as, as I was refreshing my mind on R.C. Sproul's book, uh, Chosen by God, which helps give a better understanding on God's election of man. In R.C., in his, in his uh, I think it was his 25th year edition of the book, was reflecting about how God, just testimonies, thousands of testimonies of people saying how God used that book in their lives. And they would tell him, R.C., we loved your book called Holiness of God. How many of you read that? It's a great book. Uh, somebody in the church, I forget who, is just getting ready to finish that. And they were saying, I loved your book, The Holiness of God. But this book of yours, chosen by God, I hated. And his response was, well, you better go back and read The Holiness of God because you didn't understand that book if you don't like this book. See, if we don't understand the good news about what our need is and how God acts and how we respond, our evangelism is going to be skewed. We're going to get the cart before the horse. When we understand the gracious nature of salvation, there is only one proper response, gratitude. If I couldn't do anything to work myself into God's favor until He first worked in my life to hate my sin and to turn to Him, I was only content in rebellion. Life was all about me. I'm a little behind on my grading for... uh, for my students in their first essay. I think I've used this as an illustration before, but I think it kind of captures what I'm trying to say to you. The first essay that uh, I had to get graded for students last Monday night was on theodicy. What is theodicy? Anybody know what that fancy theological term stands for? A theodicy? Okay, how... And I'd, I'd tweak the definition a little, but how a good God can allow you to... How can God be good and sovereign and allow such wickedness? Whether that be moral evil, like the sinful events that happened of, say, uh, a little child being molested or a bunch of kids in an elementary school being shot dead, that's moral evil. What's natural evil in our world? 
Natural evil is like uh, tsunamis, typhoons, hurricanes, just natural. So, so there's evil, there's wickedness in the world. If God is love, and yet God has the ability to prevent such things, why doesn't he? And so a theodicy reconciles how God is sovereign, and he is loving, and yet allows evil. So how do you suppose a lot of people respond to that if God is love and God is sovereign? The majority opinion of the essays that come across my laptop is the free will defense. That because God gave us a free will to choose and man back in Genesis 3 chose to rebel, we are culpable. Actually, culpable is not the right term. Excuse me. We are responsible. We are the reason for sin and wickedness in the world. Because we've got to get God off the hook. Because God is love, by definition. But in people's de- uh, people trying to justify the ways of God with man, trying to get God off the hook that God is loving, and that it's man's fault... What you're saying in a free will defense is that God is not, what? God is not sovereign. If He is loving, He would prevent catastrophes from happening. If God is love, He wouldn't allow such travesty to happen in your history log of your life. We have to acknowledge evil. Though I cannot go so far as to go with a lot of people on their free will defense. Do we have a will? Yes, we do. But why should we subjugate man's will or or, uh, God's will to man's will? If we're saying that we're at fault and God's wringing His hands and had no power to prevent evil from happening, what we have is sovereign man and a non-sovereign God. If God didn't in some way foreordain evil, then He is not sovereign and He is not what? If He is not sovereign, bingo. Because sovereignty, you must, God must be sovereign or He's not God. Now, little caveat, uh, students think that when I'm giving these comments on their papers that since they're not, uh, uh, well, one Saturday, I guess yesterday at 3.30 in the morning I saw this response, since I didn't have a Calvinistic response, Dr. Reardon, you marked me off. I said, no, I said a lot of the comments, I'm not marking you off on your theology, but how you're handling Scripture. I want to help you think that you, if you believe A, which leads to B, which leads to C, here is the conclusion. Let's think consistently. Let's think logically. Let's think biblically. And so, what we need to make sure is, yeah, we recognize evil. We recognize God is good and God is sovereign. So, somehow in the wisdom of God... He has allowed evil without telling us all His purposes in it. Yes, we know Romans 8, 28, God's going to work everything to get... Matter of fact, that's a verse I'll question people, you know, that uh, do you not believe Romans 8, 28? That God is going to work everything together. What? To good. To who? 
those that love Him, those that respond in lives of worship and, and uh, are being conformed to the image of Christ. We have to admit at Deuteronomy 29.29 that the secret things belong to the Lord. There is mystery. There's stuff we're not going to figure out. So let's speak where Scripture speaks and let's remain silent where Scripture is silent. We don't have all of the information about how God's sovereignty works in harmony with man's responsibility, but the Bible does teach it, that we are culpable. Yes, we're culpable for our sin, but we've got to have some allowance of why God allowed evil. You think it caught God off, off track by surprise? No, God knew it was going to sin. Jesus was the lamb... Where was he slain? Before the foundation of the world. This wasn't a good plan gone awry. So our, our theodicy, our answering of God's love and God's sovereignty and wickedness in the world must be one that is consistent with the biblical testimony. How that he, in, 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 the, in the gospel and our doctrine of salvation that merciful God has rescued helpless sinners that cannot merit God's favor. You know, we could, if the wages of sin is death, we could die a thousand deaths and still not be meriting any favor with God. It took the death of the sinless one, the one who lived a perfect life of righteousness under the law, so that when he died, it was that death that could atone for the sin of the many. So our evangelism is shaped by our understanding of conversion. Who saves who? Gracious nature of salvation breeds gratitude. It breeds, uh, you know, even people that uh, would uh, err on the side of um, more of an Arminian uh, understanding of the gospel. Listen to their testimonies. Everybody, the consistency of what ties everyone's testimonies together is how, how do people usually uh, share what Christ has done in their lives? They're filled with an innate awareness of the gracious nature. I was totally lost in sin, but God but God. They don't realize that they're ascribing to the doctrines of grace there, but God, God intervened when we were serving ourselves, when we were slaves of sin, Romans 3. When I was dead in my transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2, unable to respond in righteousness. If, if this great reality... This stunning, amazing act of God's kindness is left to the side in the church. And you are not every week, on a weekly basis, as we partake of the Lord's table like we do today, every other week. Even on a daily basis, if it's, just, uh, if it's off to the side, ministry, at church, uh, ministry as a church is not going to be healthy. If we get past the gospel, we've gone too far. If we become apathetic, 
if it just gets old hat, if we lose the wonder of it all, that holy God redeemed rebels. It can't get left to the side. Because then evangelism becomes our doing. I, my favorite example through the years has been a, a dear friend. We, we used to spend a lot of time in, in ministry and this dear brother would go out in evangelism not understanding the sovereignty of God and, and how it uh, interacts with our evangelism. He'd say, Pastor Parker, I spent hours with this gal and she didn't come to Christ. And he'd feel like an abysmal failure in his evangelism. I, I spent many years living that way. Underneath the gray cloud of ineffectiveness in evangelism. Dever states in his book on evangelism, which I meant to bring and show you a copy of, but it's, it's a short, small read. It's, it's really good. But he said, uh, one sign that a church may not have a biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism is that its membership is markedly larger than its attendance. Yeah, that signifies people aren't wowed and dazzled and led to reverent worship at the gospel. If we are not corporately celebrating the greatness of God's rescue effort in the gospel, uh, to flesh out for you uh, some of what context this comes out of when Dever writes that, when, when uh, Mark Dever went to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, anybody know which flavor of Baptist they are? Southern Baptist Church, where typically your church membership roles are like yay big, and those in the pew on an average Sunday is like this big. You notice the disconnect? And so they spent, I believe it was a Wednesday night, getting their church roles up to date as to, you know, some people hadn't been there in so many months, or dare I say, years and yet they were a part of Capitol Hill Baptist. No, they weren't part of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Yeah, they were part of the visible church, which wasn't resembling very accurately the church of Jesus Christ. And so one by one, name by name, as an act of as a congregational church, they released people from membership of the church that hadn't been there in, in a coon's age. I think that's how they say it down south. I don't know. At the end of that meeting, Dever's response is, now I know who my church is. Now I know who I'm responsible to shepherd, those that are part of the church. Churches don't stop to ask by its evangelism. Uh, the, if, if our doctrine doesn't drive our evangelism, if our doctrine of conversion, then it's all going to be a big manipulation game. It's going to be a numbers game as to how many people got saved every month or year. How many people prayed the, the sinner's prayer with me last week on, on door-to-door? What do you tell the person you're, you say that you're evangelizing? 
when, when you're telling them what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, because what you, what you say to that is, is your, your philosophy of evangelism. Uh, when, you, when you tell them what discipleship is, is, is what they are getting out of what you tell them, oh, God's going to take all the troubles away. God's going to make uh, life great. Going to make me a better husband and uh, I'll have a, a better job. What did you teach them about God, sin, and the world? So our evangelism is shaped by our understanding of conversion. You notice that next uh, box there, what is evangelism? Yes, we are called to care. We, we plead with sinners. We even persuade unbelievers. We use apologetics. We talk with people about uh, early earth creationism. We talk about them, about God's creatorship and us as His uh, creation and our need to submit to Him. But in our evangelism, it, our evangelism is not doing anything to secure a profession. Trying to force a spiritual birth will prove as ineffective as Ezekiel trying to stitch together dead, dry bones like we read in our devotions or, or uh, recently in Ezekiel. Or it's like Nicodemus trying to give himself a new birth of the Spirit. It just doesn't happen. So we start, stop short of manipulation, whether that be through the form of an altar call system or the sinner's prayer. And as much as we plead with people to come to Christ, I plead with my kids. You plead with them to come to Jesus. We stop short. We, yeah, we urge them to come all the way to Christ. We pray to the Lord to draw them, to reveal Himself, to give them a hatred for sin and a love for Him and His righteousness. I talked with uh, some people last week after the sermon who were raised up in, uh, uh, like I was taught in Bible school, in, in fighting fundamentalism uh, churches where your evangelism is all about methodology and program-oriented, how that your assurance is based on the prayer that you prayed someday, not the life of righteousness led thereafter. Our evangelism is not just to secure a profession. It's not the same as sharing personal testimony. Yeah, when people go through the waters of baptism here, we've helped them think through the gospel. We've helped them think through conversion. We share our testimonies. But that's not the same thing as evangelism. We want to be sure about telling people what they have done against a holy God and what God has done and what they need to do in response to that. In our regular evangelistic endeavors, we want to give a rational defense of the faith. So it's not just doing a work of charity. I, I'm the first one in line to say, yeah, yeah, let's have a soup kitchen. Let's do a, a food bank or, or any other thing to help some needs out there in community, but not if it's going to take the only place of the gospel. Let's use it as a means for the gospel. So, end of the day, are you responsible for the results of your evangelistic encounter? No. No. It's not like at work where you're compensated according to extra production or you're evaluated according to productivity. It's different in the church. We cannot say that we have only successfully evangelized when conversion follows. 
You see how conversion drives evangelism? If we understand conversion, who does what? If I share the good news and if I open wide my mouth to my neighbors and they are not converted, I ought to just be thrilled, ecstatic that God's given me another opportunity for the gospel and then continue in prayer that God would be kind enough to lead them to repentance. I can't save them. Doesn't that take the pressure off? We're not talking about stale Calvinism that says, oh, if they're not elect. Have you evangelized? Because if you're not, you're disobedient and you don't understand election. If it doesn't lead into evangelism. That takes the pressure off. Especially as we're informed, only a few find the very narrow way. We scatter the the seed of the gospel far and wide, but God gives the increase. So let's emphasize faithfulness and leave the fruitfulness to God. If so, we'll be healthy in our outlook on evangelism. We will speak the words. We will share the news, the good news that Christ by His death and resurrection has secured a way for sinful people and holy God to be reconciled. But God Himself produces true conversions when we present the good news. We proclaim the gospel to whosoever will. Trusting God to convert people. Salvation, as Jonah says, comes from the Lord. Our time is gone. Would you pray with me? Father, so much more to be said. But we want to be healthy. We want to be a church that displays your glory. And we know that there are elements for us to shoot for, to excel in. That of sound teaching and expository preaching and a biblical understanding of of gospel conversion and a biblical philosophy of evangelism that is driven by our understanding of your converting acts. Lord, we know that true health and growth comes from you through your people as we are faithful to the word. This week, count us faithful. Help us not to look for any additives to give to non-Christians. That which they naturally want of joy and peace without Christ. We know that the whole truth is that our deepest need is spiritual life, a new life that only comes by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus alone. Help us to be clear with the gospel and leave the converting to you. For the praise of your great name we ask it, amen.